from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. On this episode, we're going to talk about one of the strangest movies to come out of the decade, not only for its material, but for who directed it. Robert Altland, O.C. and Stiggs. As always, before we get to O.C. and Stiggs, we will be going a little further back in time. Although he's not every cineast's cup of tea, it is generally acknowledged that Robert Altman was one of the best filmmakers to ever work in cinema. But he wasn't an immediate success when he broke into the industry. Born in Kansas City in February of 1925, Robert Altman would join the U.S. Army Air Force after graduating from high school, as many a young man would do in the days of World War II. He would train to be a pilot, and he would fly more than 50 missions during the war as part of the 307th Bomb Group, operating in the Pacific Theater. They would help liberate prisoners of war held in Japanese POW camps from Okinawa to Manila after the victory over Japan led to the end of World War II in that part of the world. After the war, Altman would move to Los Angeles to break into the movies, and he would even succeed in selling a screenplay to RKO Pictures called Bodyguard, a film noir story shot in 1948 starring Lawrence Tierney and Priscilla Lane. But on the final film, he would only share a story by credit with his then-writing partner, George W. George. But by 1950, he'd be back in Kansas City, where he would direct more than 65 industrial films over the course of three years, before heading back to Los Angeles with the experience he would need to take another shot. Altman would spend a few years directing episodes of a drama series called Pulse of the City on the Dumont Television Network and a syndicated police drama called The Sheriff of Cochise but he wouldn't get his first feature directing gig until 1957, when a businessman in Kansas City would hire the 32-year-old to write and direct a movie locally. That film, The Delinquents, cost only $60,000 to make, and it would be purchased for release by United Artists for $150,000. The first film to star future Billy Jack writer-director star Tom Laughlin, The Delinquents would gross more than a million dollars in theaters, a very good sum back in those days. But despite the success of the film, the only work Altman could get outside of television at that time was co-directing The James Dean Story, a documentary set up at Warner Brothers to capitalize on the interest of the actor after dying in a car accident two years earlier. Throughout the 1960s, Altman would continue to work in television until he was finally given another chance to direct a feature film. 1967's Countdown was a lower-budgeted feature at Warner Brothers, featuring James Caan in an early leading role, about the space race between the Americans and the Soviets a good two years before Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. The shoot itself was easy, but Altman would be fired from the film shortly after filming was completed, as Jack Warner, the 75-year-old head of the studio, was not very happy about the overlapping dialogue a motif that would become a part of Altman's way of making movies. Although his name appears in the credits as the director of the film, he had no input in its assembly. His ambiguous ending was changed and the film would be edited to be more family-friendly than the director intended. Altman would follow Countdown with 1969's That Cold Day in the Park, a psychological drama that would be both a critical and financial disappointment. But his next film, 
would change everything. Before Altman was hired by 20th Century Fox to direct M.A.S.H., more than a dozen major filmmakers would pass on the project. An adaptation of a little-known novel by a Korean war veteran who worked as a surgeon at one of the mobile auxiliary surgical hospitals that give the story its acronymic title, M.A.S.H. would literally fly under the radar from the executives at the studio as most of the $3 million film would be shot at the studio ranch lot in Malibu while the executives were more concerned about their bigger movies of the year in production, like their $12.5 million biographical film on World War II General George S. Patton and their $25 million World War II drama Torah, 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 one of the first movies to be a Japanese and American co-production since the end of the war. Altman was going to make MASH his way no matter what. When the studio refused to allow him to hire a fair amount of extras to populate the MASH camp, Altman would steal individual lines from other characters to give to background actors in order to get the bustling atmosphere he wanted. In order to give the camp a properly dirty look, he would shoot most of the outdoor scenes with a zoom lens and a fog filter, with the camera a reasonably far distance from the actors so that they could act to one another instead of to the camera, giving the film a sort of documentary feel, and he would find flexibility when the moment called for it. Sally Kellerman, who was hired to play Margaret Hotlips Houlihan, would work with Altman to expand and improve her character, to be more than just eye candy, in large part because Altman liked what she was doing in her scenes. This kind of flexibility infuriated the two major stars of the film, Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland, who at one point during the pursuit tried to get Altman fired for treating everyone in the cast and crew with the same level of respect and decorum, regardless of their position. But unlike at Warner's a couple years earlier, the success of movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider bamboozled Hollywood studio executives, who did not understand exactly what the new generation of filmgoers wanted, and would often give filmmakers more leeway than before, in the hopes that lightning could be captured once again and Altman would give them exactly that. M.A.S.H., which would also be the first major studio film to be released with the F-word spoken on screen, would not only become a critical hit, but become the third highest-grossing movie released in 1970, grossing more than $80 million. The movie would win the Palme d'Or at that year's Cannes Film Festival, and it would be nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Supporting Actress for Miss Kellerman, winning only for Best Adapted Screenplay. An ironic win, since most of the dialogue was improvised on screen, but the victory for screenwriter Ring Lardner Jr. would effectively destroy the once-powerful Hollywood blacklist that had been in place since the Red Scare of the 1950s. After MASH, Altman went on one of the greatest runs any filmmaker would ever enjoy. MASH would be released in January of 1970, and Altman's follow-up, Brewster McCloud, would be released in December. Bud Court, the future star of Harold and Maude, plays a recluse who lives in the fallout shelter of the Houston Astrodome, who is building a pair of wings in order to achieve his dream of flying. The film would feature a number of actors who had already were featured in MASH and would continue to be featured in a number of future Altman movies including Sally Kellerman, Michael Murphy, John Shuck, and Burt Remsen. But another reason to watch Brewster McCloud, if you've never seen it, 
is it's because it's the film debut of Shelley Duvall, one of our greatest and least appreciated actresses, who would go on to appear in six other Altman movies over the ensuing decade. 1971's McCabe and Mrs. Miller, for me, is his second best film. A western starring Warren Beatty and Julie Christie was a minor hit when it was first released, but has seen a reevaluation over the years that found it to be named the eighth best western of all time by the American Film Institute, which frankly is too low for me. The film would also bring a little-known Canadian poet and musician to the world, Leonard Cohen, who wrote and performed three songs for the soundtrack. Yeah, you have Robert Altman to thank for Leonard Cohen. 1972's Images was another psychological horror film, this time co-written with English actress Susanna York, who also stars in the film, as an author of children's books who starts to have wild hallucinations at her remote vacation home, after learning her husband might be cheating on her. The $800,000 film was one of the first to be produced by Hemdale Films, a British production company co-founded by blow-up actor David Hemmings, but the film would be a critical and financial disappointment when it was released Christmas week. But it would get nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Dramatic Score. It would be one of two nominations in the category that year for John Williams, the other being The Poseidon Adventure. Whatever resentment Elliot Gould may have had with Altman during the shooting of M.A.S.H. was gone by late 72, when the actor agreed to star in the director's new movie, a modern adaptation of Raymond Chandler's 1953 novel, The Long Goodbye. Gould would be the eighth actor to play the lead character, Philip Marlowe, in a movie. The screenplay would be written by Leigh Brackett, who Star Wars nerds know as the first writer on The Empire Strikes Back, but had also adapted Chandler's novel, The Big Sleep, another Philip Marlowe story, to the big screen back in 1946. Howard Hawks and Peter Bogdanovich had both been approached to make the film, and it would be Bogdanovich who would recommend Altman to the president of United Artists. The final film would anger Chandler fans who did not like Altman's approach to the material, and the $1.7 million film would gross less than a million dollars when it was released in March of 1973. But like many of Altman's movies, it was a big hit with critics, and would find favor with film fans in the years to come. 1974 would be another year where Altman would make and release two movies in the same calendar year. The first, Thieves Like Us, was a crime drama, most noted as one of the few movies to not have any kind of traditional musical score. What music there is in the film is usually heard off radios seen in individual scenes. Once again, we have a number of Altman regulars in the film, including Duvall, Remsen, Shuck, and Tom Skerritt, and would feature Keith Carradine, who had a small co-starring role in McCabe and Mrs. Miller in his first major leading role. And, once again, the film would be a hit with critics, but a dud with audiences. But, unlike most of Altman's movies of the 1970s, Thieves Like Us has not enjoyed the same kind of reappraisal. The second film, California Split, was released in August, just six months after Thieves Like Us. Elliot Gould once again stars in a Robert Altman movie, this time alongside George Siegel. They play a pair of gamblers who ride what they think is a lucky streak from Los Angeles to Reno, Nevada, and it would be the only time that Gould and Siegel would work closely together in a movie. And watching California Split, one wishes there could have been more. The movie would be 
an innovator seemingly purpose-built for a Robert Altman movie, for it would be the first non-cinerama movie to be recorded using 8-track stereo sound. More than any movie before, Altman could control how his overlapping dialogue was placed in a theater. But while most theaters that played the movie would only play the movie in mono sound, the film would still be a minor success, bringing in more than $5 million in ticket sales. 1975 would bring what many considered to be the quintessential Robert Altman movie to the screen. The two-hour and 40-minute Nashville would feature no less than 24 different major characters. As a group of people come to Music City to be involved in a gala concert for a political outsider who is running for president on the replacement party ticket. The cast is one of the best ever assembled for a movie, ever, including Ned Beatty, Karen Black, Ronnie Blakely, Keith Carradine, Geraldine Chaplin, Robert Doquai, Shelley Duvall, Alan Garfield, Henry Gibson, Scott Glenn, Jeff Goldblum, Barbara Harris, Christina Raines, Lily Tomlin, and Keenan Wynn. Altman would be nominated for two Academy Awards for the film, Best Picture as its producer and Best Director, while both Ronnie Blakely and Lily Tomlin would be nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Keith Carradine would also be nominated for an Oscar, but not as an actor. He would, at the urging of Altman during the production of the film, write and perform a song called I'm Easy, which would win for Best Original Song. The $2.2 million film would earn $10 million in ticket sales and would eventually become part of the fourth class of movies to be selected for preservation by the National Film Registry in 1991, the first of four Robert Altman films to be given that honor. MASH the Cave and Mrs. Miller and The Long Goodbye would also be selected for preservation over the years. And we're going to stop here for a second and take a look at that list of films again. MASH, Brewster McLeod, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye, Thieves Like Us, California Split, and Nashville. Eight movies made over a five-year period that between them earned 12 Academy Award nominations, four of which would be deemed so culturally important that they should be preserved for future generations. And we're only halfway through the decade. But the problem with a director like Robert Altman, like many of our greatest directors, their next film, after one of their greatest successes, feels like a major disappointment. And his 1976 film, Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson, and that is the complete title of the film, by the way, did not meet the lofty expectations of film fans, not only for its director, but for its main stars. Altman would cast two legendary actors he had not yet worked with, Paul Newman and Burt Lancaster, and the combination of those two actors with this director should have been fantastic but the results were merely okay. In fact, Altman would, for the first time in his career, re-edit a film after its theatrical release, removing some of the Wild West show acts that he felt were maybe redundant. His 1977 film Three Women would bring Altman back to the limelight. The film was based on a dream he had one night while his wife was in the hospital. In that dream, he was directing his regular co-star, Shelley Duvall, alongside Sissy Spacek, who he'd never worked with before, 
in a story about an identity theft that took place in the deserts outside Los Angeles. He woke up in the middle of the night, jotted down what he could remember, and went back to sleep. In the morning, he didn't have a full movie planned out, but enough of one to get Alan Ladd Jr., the president of 20th Century Fox, to put up $1.7 million for a not-fully-formed idea. That's how much Robert Altman was trusted at the time. That and Altman was known for never going over budget. As long as he stayed within his budget, Ladd would let Altman make whatever movie he wanted to make. That plus Ladd was more concerned about a $10 million movie he approved that was going over budget over in England, a science fiction movie directed by the guy who did American Graffiti that had no stars outside of Sir Alec Guinness. That movie, of course, was Star Wars, which would be released four weeks after Three Women had its premiere in New York City. While Three Women didn't make one one-hundredth of the money Star Wars made, it was one of the best-reviewed movies of the year. But strangely, the film would not be seen again outside of sporadic screenings on cable until it was released on DVD by the Criterion Collection 27 years later. I'm not going to try and explain the movie to you. Just trust me that Three Women is from a master craftsman at the top of his game. While on the press tour to publicize Three Women, a reporter asked Altman what he was going to be doing next. He jokingly said that he was going to shoot a wedding. But then he went home, thought about it some more, and in a few weeks, he had a basic idea sketched out for a movie called A Wedding that would take place over the course of one day. As the daughter of a southern Nuevo Riche family marries the son of a wealthy Chicago businessman, who may or may not be a major figure in the outfit. Wink, wink. And while the film is quite entertaining, what's most interesting about watching this 1978 movie in 2023 is not only how many great established actors Altman got to work with on the film, including Carol Burnett, Paul Dooley, Howard Duff, Mia Farrow, Vittorio Gossman, Lauren Hutton, and in her 100th movie, Lillian Gish. But the number of notable actors that he was able to get because he was shooting the film just outside Chicago. Not only will you see Dennis Christopher just before his breakthrough in Breaking Away, and not only will you see Pam Dauber just before she was cast alongside Robin Williams in Mork and Mindy, but you'll also see Dennis Franz, Laurie Metcalf, Gary Sinise, Tim Thomerson, George Went, and John Malkovich. And because Altman was able to keep the budget at a reasonable level, less than $1.75 million, the film would be slightly profitable for 20th Century Fox after grossing $3.6 million at the box office. Altman's next film for Fox, 1979's Quintet, would not be as fortunate. Altman had come up with the story for this post-apocalyptic drama as a vehicle for Walter Hill to write and direct. But Hill would instead make The Warriors, and Altman decided to make the film himself. While developing the screenplay with his co-writers, Frank Barheit and Patricia Resnick, Altman would create a board game, complete with token pieces and a full set of rules, to flesh out the storyline. Altman would once again work with Paul Newman, who stars as a seal hunter in the early days of a new ice age, who finds himself in an elaborate game with a group of gamblers where losing in the game meant losing your life in the process. 
Altman would deliberately hire an international cast to star alongside Newman, not only to help improve the film's ability to do well in foreign territories, but to not have the storyline tied to any specific country. So we have Italian actor Vittorio Gassman, Spaniard Fernando Rey, Swedish actress Bibi Anderson, French actress Bridget Fossey, and Danish actress Nina van Palant. In order to maintain the mystery of the movie, Altman would ask Fox to withhold all pre-release publicity for the film in order to avoid, quote, any conditioning of the audience, unquote. Imagine trying to put together a compelling trailer for a movie featuring one of the most beloved actors of all time, but you're not allowed to show potential audiences what they're getting themselves into. Altman would let the studio use five shots from the film, totaling about seven seconds of screen time for the trailer, which mostly comprised of slow-motion shots of a pair of dice bouncing around, while the names of the stars popped up from moment to moment, and a narrator trying to create some sense of mystery on the soundtrack. But audiences would not be intrigued by the mystery, and critics would tear the $6.4 million budgeted film apart. To be fair, the shoot for the film in the winter of 1977 outside Montreal was a tough time for all, and Altman would lose final cut on the film for going severely over budget. Although there seems to be very little documentation about how much the final film might have differed from what Altman would have been working on had he been allowed to complete the film his way. But despite all the problems with Quintet, Fox would still back Altman's next movie, A Perfect Couple, which would be shot after Fox pulled Altman off Quintet. Can you imagine that happening today? A director working with the studio that just pulled him off their project? But that's how little ego Altman had. He just wanted to make movies, tell stories. This simple romantic comedy starred his regular collaborator, Paul Dooley, as Alex, a man who follows a band of traveling bohemian musicians because he's falling for one of the singers in the band. Altman kept the budget on the film at $1.9 million, but the response from critics was mostly concerned that Altman had lost his touch. Maybe it was because this was his 13th film of the decade. But there was serious concern about the director's ability to tell a story had evaporated. And that worry would continue with his next film, Health. A satire of the political scene in the United States at the end of the 1970s, Health would follow a health food organization holding a convention at a luxury hotel in St. Petersburg, Florida. As one would expect from a Robert Altman movie, there is a hell of a cast. Along with Henry Gibson and Paul Dooley, who co-wrote the script with Altman and Frank Barheit, the cast would include Lauren Bacall, Carol Burnett, James Garner, and in one of her earliest screen appearances ever, Alfre Woodard, as well as Dick Cavett and Dinah Shore as themselves. But between the shooting of the film and the late winter and early fall of 1978 and the planned Christmas 1979 release, there was a change of management at Fox. Alan Ladd Jr. was out, and after Altman turned in his final cut, new studio head Norman Levy decided to pull the film off the 1979 release calendar. Altman fought to get the film released sometime during the 1980 presidential campaign and was able to get Levy to give the film a platform release starting in Los Angeles and New York City in March of 1980. But that date would get canceled as well. 
Levy then suggested an April 1980 test run in St. Louis, which Altman was not happy with. Altman countered with test runs in Boston, Houston, Sacramento, and San Francisco. The best Altman, who was in Malta shooting his next movie, could get were sneak previews of the film in those four markets. And the response cards from the audience were so bad, the studio decided to effectively put the film on the proverbial shelf. Back from the Mediterranean Sea, Altman would get permission to take the film to the Montreal World Film Festival in August of 1980 and the Telluride and Venice Film Festivals in September. After good responses from the filmgoers at those festivals, Fox would relent and give the film a quote-unquote preview screening at the United Artists Theatre in Westwood starting on September 12, 1980. But the studio would give the film the most boring ad campaign possible. A very crude line drawing of an older woman's pearl bracelet-covered arm thrusted upward while holding a carrot. With no trailers in circulation at any theater, and no television commercials on air, it would be a little surprise the film doesn't do a whole lot of business. You really had to know the film had been released. But its $14,000 opening weekend gross at that one theater wasn't really that bad. And its second week gross of $10,500 with even less ad support in the papers was decent, if unspectacular. But it would be good enough to get the film a four-week run playdate at the UA Westwood. And then, nothing. Until early March of 1981, when a film society at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, was able to screen a 16mm print for one show, while a theater in Baltimore was able to show the film one time at the end of March. But then nothing again for more than another year, when the film would finally get a belated official release at the Film Forum in New York City on April 7, 1982. But it would only play for a week, and as a nonprofit, the Film Forum does not report film grosses, so we have no idea how well the film actually did. Since then, the movie showed once on CBS in August of 1983, and occasionally plays on the Fox Movie Channel today, but it has never been released on VHS, or DVD, or Blu-ray. I mentioned a few moments ago that while he was dealing with all this drama concerning how Thaltman was in the Mediterranean filming another movie, I'm not going to go into too much into that movie here, since I already have an episode for the future planned for it. Suffice to say that a Robert Altman-directed live-action musical version of the Popeye the Sailor Man cartoon, featuring songs by the incomparable Harry Nilsson, should have been a smash hit. But it wasn't. Oh, it was profitable to be certain, but not the hit everyone was expecting. We'll talk about Popeye in much more detail soon. After the disappointing results for Popeye, Altman decided to stop working in Hollywood for a while and hit the Broadway stages to direct a show called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. While the show's run was not very long and the reviews not very good, Altman would fund a movie version himself, thanks in part to the sale of his production company, Lionsgate, not to be confused with the current studio called Lionsgate. And he would cast Karen Black, Cher, and Sandy Dennis, alongside newcomers 
Sudi Bond and Kathy Bates as the five female members of the Disciples of James Dean, who come together on the 20th anniversary of the actor's death to honor his life and times. As the first film released by a new independent distributor called Cinecom, I'll spend more time talking about this movie on our show about that distributor, also coming soon. Defice to say that Altman was back. Critics were behind the film, and art house audiences loved it. This would be the first time Altman adapted a stage play to the screen, and it would set a tone for a number of his works throughout the rest of the decade. Streamers would be Altman's 17th film in 13 years and another adaptation of a stage play. One of several works by noted Broadway playwright David Rabe's time in the Army during the Vietnam War. The film followed four young soldiers waiting to be shipped to Vietnam who deal with Rachel's tensions and their own intolerance when one of the soldiers reveals he is gay. The film features Matthew Modine as the Rabe stand-in and features a rare dramatic role for comedy legend David Alan Greer. Many critics would note how much more intense the film version was compared to the stage version, as Altman's camera was able to effortlessly breeze around the set and get up close and personal with the performers in a way that is simply impossible on the stage. But in 1983, audiences were still not quite ready to deal with the trauma of Vietnam on film, and the movie would be fairly ignored by audiences, grossing just $378,000. Which finally, after nearly half an hour, brings us to our featured movie, O.C. and Stiggs. Now, you might be asking yourself why I went into such detail about Altman's career, most of it taking place during the 70s. Well, I wanted to establish what types of material Altman would choose for his projects and just how different O.C. and Stiggs was from any other project that he had made to date. O.C. and Stiggs began their lives in the July 1981 issue of the National Lampoon, as written by two of the editors on the magazine, Ted Mann and Todd Carroll. The characters were fun-loving and occasionally destructive teenage pranksters, and their first appearance in the magazine would prove to be popular with readers and the pair would appear a few more times until Maddie Simmons, the publisher and owner of the National Lampoon, gave over the entire October 1982 issue to Mann and Carol for a story called The Utterly Monstrous Mind-Roasting Summer of O.C. and Stiggs. It's easy to find PDFs of the issues online if you look for them. So the issue becomes one of the biggest selling issues in the history of the National Lampoon and Maddie Simmons has been building the National Lampoon brand name by sponsoring a series of movies, including Animal House, co-written by Lampoon writers Doug Kenny and Chris Miller, and the soon-to-be-released movies Class Reunion, written by Lampoon writer John Hughes, yes, that John Hughes, and Movie Madness, written by five Lampoon writers, including Todd Carroll. But for some reason, Simmons was not behind the idea of turning the utterly monstrous, mind-roasting adventures of Osteen and Stiggs into a movie. He would, however, allow Mann and Carol to shop the idea around Hollywood and wish them the best of luck. As luck would have it, Mann and Carol would meet Peter Newman, who had worked as Altman's production executive on 
come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, and was looking to set up his first film as a producer. And while Newman might have not had the credits, he had the connections. The first person he would take the script to was Oscar-winning director Mike Nichols, whose credits by this time, including Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Catch-22, and Carnal Knowledge. Surprisingly, Nichols was not just interested in making the movie, but he really wanted to have Eddie Murphy, who was a breakthrough star on SNL, but was still a month away from becoming a movie star when 48 Hours was released, to play one of the leading characters. But Murphy couldn't get out of his SNL commitments, and Nichols had too many other projects, both on Broadway and in the movies, to be able to commit to this film. A few weeks later, Newman and Altman both attended a party where they would catch up with each other after several months. Newman started to tell Altman about this new project he was setting up, and to Newman's surprise, Altman, drawn to the character's anti-establishment outlook, expressed interest in making it. And because Altman's name still commanded respect in Hollywood, several studios would start to show their interest in making the movie with them. MGM, who was enjoying a number of successes in 1982 thanks to movies like Shoot the Moon, Diner, Victor Victoria, Rocky III, Poltergeist, Pink Floyd the Wall, and My Favorite Year, made a preemptive bid on the film, hoping to beat Paramount Pictures to the deal. But unknown to Altman, what interested MGM was that Sylvester Stallone, of all people, went nuts for the script when he read it, and mentioned to his buddies at the studio that he might be interested in making it himself. Despite hating studio executives for doing stuff like buying a script he's attached to and then kicking him off so some Italian stallion not known for comedy could make it himself, Altman agreed to make the movie with MGM once Stallone lost interest. As the studio promised, there would be no further notes about the script, that Altman could have final cut on the film, that he could shoot the movie in Phoenix without any studio interference, and that he could have a budget of seven million dollars. Since this was a Robert Altman film, the cast would be big and eclectic, filled with a number of his regular cast members, known actors who he had never worked with before, and newcomers who would go on to have success a few years down the road. Because seriously, outside of a Robert Altman movie, where are you going to find a cast that includes John Cryer, Gene Curtin, Paul Dooley, Dennis Hopper, Tina Louise, Martin Mull, Cynthia Nixon, Bob Uger, Melvin Van Peebles, and King Sonny Ade and his African Beats. And then imagine that movie also featuring Matthew Broderick, Jim Carrey, Robert Downey Jr., and Laura Dern. The story for the film would both follow the stories that appeared on the pages of National Lampoon very closely, while also making some major changes. In the film, Oliver Cromwell, O.C. Ogilvy, and Mark Stiggs are two never-do-well, middle-class Phoenix, Arizona high school students who are disgusted with what they see as an omnipresent culture of vulgar and vapid suburban consumerism. They spend their day slacking off and committing pranks or outright crimes against their sworn enemies, the Schwab family, especially family head Randall Schwab, a wealthy industrial salesman, who was the responsible for the involuntary commitment of O.C.'s grandfather into a group home. During the film, O.C. and Stiggs will ruin the wedding of Randall Schwab's daughter, Leonor, raft their way down to a Mexican fiesta, 
ruin a horrible dinner theater performance directed by their high school's drama teacher that's being attended by the Schwabs, and turn the Schwab mansion into a homeless shelter while the family is on vacation. The film ends with O.C. and Stiggs getting into a gunfight with Randall Schwab before being rescued by Dennis Hopper and a helicopter before discovering one of their adventures that summer had made them very wealthy themselves. The film would begin production in Phoenix on August 22, 1983, with two newcomers, Daniel H. Jenkins and Neil Barry, as the titular stars of the film. And almost immediately, Altman's chaotic ways of making a movie would become a problem. Altman would make sure the entire cast and crew were all staying at the same hotel in town, across the street from a Greyhound racetrack, so Altman could take off to bet on a few of the races during production downtime. And he would make sure that the bar at the hotel was an open bar for his team while they were shooting. When filming was finished every day, the director and his cast would head to a makeshift screening room at the hotel where they would watch the previous day's footage, a process called dailies in production parlance. On most films, dailies are only attended by the director and his immediate production crew. But in Phoenix, everyone was encouraged to attend. And according to producer Peter Newman and actor Dan Jenkins, everybody loved the footage. Although both would note that it might have been a combination of the alcohol, the pot, the cocaine, and the dehydration caused by shooting all day in the excessive Arizona heat during the middle of summer that might have helped people enjoy the footage a little more. But here's the funny thing about dailies. Unless a film is being shot in sequence, you're only seeing small fragments of scenes, often the same actors doing the same things over and over again before the camera switches places to catch reactions or have other characters continue the scene. Sometimes there are long takes of scenes that might be interrupted by an actor flubbing a line or an unexpected camera ditter or some other interruption that requires a restart. But everyone seemed to be having fun, especially when dailies ended and Altman would show one of his other movies like M.A.S.H. or The Long Goodbye or Three Women. After two months of shooting, the film would wrap production and Altman would get to work on his edit of the film. He would have it done before the end of 1983 and he would turn it into the studio. Shortly after the new year, there would be a private screening of the movie in New York City at the offices of the talent agency William Morris, one of the largest private screening rooms in the city. Altman was there. The New York-based executives at MGM were there. Peter Newman was there. And several of the actors were there. And within five minutes of the start of the film, Altman realized what he was watching was not his cut of the film. As he was about to lose his stuff and start yelling at the production executives, the projector broke. The lights would go up and Altman would dig into the executives. This is your effing cut of the film, not mine, Altman would scream at them before he stormed out into the cold New York winter night. A few weeks later, the same print from New York would be screened for the big executives at the MGM lot in Los Angeles. Newman was there, and surprisingly, Altman was there too. The film would screen for the entire running length, and Altman would sit there, watching someone else's version of the footage he had shot. Scenes put in different places where, than where they were supposed to be, and full of music cues, not of his design or consent. At the end of the screening, the room was silent. 
Not one person in the room had laughed once during the entire screening. Newman and Altman left after the screening and would hit one of Altman's favorite local watering holes. As they said their goodbyes the next morning, Altman apologized to Newman. I hope I didn't F up your movie. Maybe the movie wasn't completely effed up, but MGM certainly neither knew what to do with the film or how to sell it. So it would just sit there, just like health a few years earlier on that proverbial shelf. More than a year later, in an issue of Spin magazine, a review of the latest album by King Sonny Ade would mention the film he performed in, Ocean Stiggs, would quote-unquote finally be released into theaters later that year. That didn't happen either, in large part because after war games in the early summer of 1983, almost every MGM release had been an outright bomb or an unexpected financial disappointment. The cash flow problem was so bad that the studio effectively had to sell itself to Atlanta cable mogul Ted Turner in order to save itself. Turner didn't actually want to buy all of MGM. He only wanted the valuable MGM film library. But the owner of MGM at the time was either going to sell it all or nothing at all. Barely two months after Ted Turner bought MGM, he had sold the famed studio lot in Culver City to Lorimar, a television production company that was looking to become a producer and distributor of motion pictures, and sold the rest of the company he never wanted in the first place back to the guy he bought it all from, who had a kind of seller's remorse. But that repurchase would saddle the company with massive bills. And movies like O.C. and Stiggs would have to sit there and collect dust while everything was sorted out. How long would O.C. and Stiggs be left in a void? It would be so long that Robert Altman would have time to make not one, not two, but three other movies that would all be released before O.C. and Stiggs ever saw the light of day. The first Secret Honor, released in 1984, featured the great Philip Baker Hall as former President Richard Nixon. It's probably Hall's single best work as an actor, and the film would be amongst the best-reviewed of Altman's career. In 1985, Altman would film Fool for Love, an adaptation of a play by Sam Shepard. This would be the only time in Shepard's film career where he would star as one of the characters he himself had written. The film would also prove once and for all that Kim Basinger was more than just a pretty face, but a real actress. And in February 1987, Altman's film version of Beyond Therapy, a play by absurdist playwright Christopher Durant, would open in theaters. The all-star cast would include Tom Conti, Jeff Goldblum, Christopher Guest, Julie Haggerty, and Glenda Jackson. On March 5, 1987, an article in Daily Variety would note that the quote-unquote long-shelved film would have a limited theatrical release in May. Despite the fact that Frankie Blondes, the vice chairman of MGM at the time, being quoted in the article saying that the film was unreleasable. It would further be noted that despite the film being available to international distributors for three years, not one company was willing to acquire the film for any market. The plan was to release the movie for one or two weeks in three major U.S. markets, depending on its popularity, and then decide a future course of action from there. But May would come and go without a hint of the film. Finally, 
on Friday, July 10th. The film would open on 18 screens, but none in any major market like Chicago, Los Angeles, or New York City. I can't find a single theater the film actually played in that weekend. But that week's box office figures would show an abysmal $6,273 worth of tickets being sold that first weekend. There would not be a second weekend of reported grosses. But, to MGM's credit, they didn't totally give up on the film. On Thursday, August 27th, Osteen Stiggs would open in at least one theater. And lucky for me, that theater happened to be the Nickelodeon Theater in Santa Cruz. But despite the fact that there was a new Robert Altman movie opening in town, I could not get a single friend to come see it with me. So on a Tuesday night at 8.40 p.m., I was the only person in all of the region to watch what I would soon discover was the worst Robert Altman movie of all time. Now, I should note that even a bad Robert Altman movie is better than many filmmakers' best movies, but O.C. and Stiggs would have the ignobility of feeling very much like a Robert Altman movie, with its wandering camera and overlapping dialogue that weaves in and out of conversations while in progress, and not quite over yet, yet not feeling anything like a Robert Altman movie at the same time. It didn't have that magical whimsiness that was the hallmark of his movies. The satire didn't have its normal bite. It had a number of Altman's regular troupe of actors, but in smaller roles than they'd usually occupy, and not giving the performances one would expect of them in an Altman movie. I don't know how well the film did at the Nick, suffice it to say that the film was gone after another week. But to MGM's credit, they still didn't give up on the film. On October 9th, the film would open at the AMC Century City 14, one of a handful of movies that would open the newest multiplex in Los Angeles. MGM did not report grosses, and the film was gone from the new multiplex after a week. But to MGM's credit, they still didn't give up on the film. The studio would give it one more chance, opening at the Film Forum in New York City on March 18, 1988. And again, because Film Forum is a non-profit, there were no reported grosses, and the film was gone after a week. But whether that was because MGM didn't support the movie this time with any kind of newspaper advertising, the largest market in America, or because the movie had been released on home video back in November 1987, remains to be seen. Ocean Stiggs would never become anything resembling a cult film. It's been released on DVD, and if one was programming a Robert Altman retrospect at a local art house movie theater, one could actually book a 35mm print of the film from the repertory cinema company Park Circus. But don't feel bad for Altman, as he would return to cinemas with a vengeance in the 1990s first with the 1990 biographical drama Vincent and Theo, featuring Tim Roth as the tortured genius 19th century painter that would put the actor on the map for good. Then in 1992, he became a sensation again with his Hollywood satire The Player, featuring Tim Robbins as a murderous studio executive trying to keep the police off his trail while he navigates the pitfalls of the industry. Altman would receive his first Oscar nomination for Best Director since 1975 with The Player, his third overall. 
and a feat he would repeat the following year with shortcuts, based on a series of short stories by Raymond Carver. In fact, Altman would be nominated for an Academy Award seven times during his career, five times as a director and twice as a producer, although he would never win a competitive Oscar. In March of 2006, while editing his 35th film, a screen adaptation of the then-popular NPR series of Prairie Home Companion, the Academy would bestow an honorary Oscar upon Altman. During his acceptance speech, Altman would wonder if perhaps the Academy acted prematurely in honoring him in this fashion. He revealed that he had received a heart transplant in the mid-1990s and felt that even though he had just turned 81 the month before, he could continue for another four years. Robert Altman would pass away from leukemia on November 20, 2006, only eight months after receiving the biggest prize of his career. Robert Altman had a style so unique unto himself, there's an adjective that exists to describe it, Altman-esque. Displaying traits typical of a film made by Robert Altman, typically highly naturalistic, but with a stylized perspective and often a subversive twist. He truly was a -a one-of-a-kind filmmaker, and there will likely never be anyone like him, no matter how hard Paul Thomas Anderson tries. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again soon when episode 106, Mad Magazine Presents Up the Academy, is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the movies we've covered this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.